Amen. And every million after that. Amen. All right. Genesis chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, Genesis chapter 22. Uh, thank you for allowing me to be here. I do take uh, count it as a privilege to be ever to be in another pastor's pulpit, and I mean that. Uh, as a pastor, uh, you definitely can understand. Uh, sometimes you have a, I mean, you always have a heart for the people, and you want to make sure that you feed them and protect them properly. So, for a pastor to give up his pulpit, that is a tremendous blessing and an honor. Genesis chapter twenty-two and. I'm going to read from verse 7 down to verse 14. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb, obviously speaking of Jesus Christ in this for a burnt offering. So they were both went uh, and went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, laid the wood in order, bound Isaac his son, and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Abraham lifted up and looked, and behold, uh, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. Thank you, Lord, for this day. I do pray, God, that you would work in our hearts today as we read your word, as we present some thoughts, I pray that uh, it would be helpful uh, to our understanding, not just something we say, but that we would apply to our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This evening, this afternoon, I'd like to speak on the steps of a good man. The steps of a good man, as found in Psalms 37, 23, states that the steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord to which I wholeheartedly agree. Yet there's a responsibility of man to walk in the ordered steps of God. Would you agree with that? And um, so there's a, there's a responsibility, and we can see and have seen that in the life of Abraham, if you, we uh, took some time from Genesis chapter 12, and we kind of did a little walk through the life of Abraham, and, and I believe this is that climactic point in which Abraham is going to show God his heart of love, as your pastor was talking earlier, and even in the prayer, uh, to show him that love, and not just that he loved us, I love him because he first loved me, uh, but to express that, and I believe you'll see that expression of love here in this passage. I mean, there have been times that Abraham disobeyed, and he got out of step and, uh, as to God's direction, he had to get refocused to that step, and, and uh, to those steps that had been ordered by God. And before we focus too much on the missteps, Let's remember uh, that it was Abraham that uh, took his or, or left his 
home, his home country, his kin and his culture, and all that he knew just to follow the call of God. Then as he, uh, he was, that uh, he had made some right and some wrong decisions along the way, no doubt about it, just like you and I do, God still uses all of these things. He doesn't miss an opportunity. Aren't you glad for that? Even when you totally mess up, God can still use that as a teaching lesson or whatever it may be. Uh, he doesn't waste it. I, I remember some years ago, as one author said, that when God's fire or Satan's fiery darts, which are to destroy you, when they cross over God's hedge of protection, God immediately transforms them into a fiery trial that now purifies you and I. And so even a situation like that where the devil thinks he has you, uh, he doesn't have you. He just, when he thinks he's, you know, uh, he, know he thinks he's going to destroy your life, uh, that's maybe sometimes the very things. I mean, you think about how the devil, had he known, had he known, uh, I mean, he wanted to destroy Jesus with all of his might. He just wanted him gone, wanted him gone, wanted him gone. And I can only imagine the glee and the excitement when uh, Jesus is going to be crucified. And I, I can't, I can't, I don't know what he was all thinking, but I can only imagine uh, the, the clapping of the hands and the excitement to say, yes, I finally got him. Had he known that he was actually providing the means for salvation for mankind, you know, uh, and yet the devil will do that with you and me too. He, he looks to destroy you, and while he's looking to destroy you, yeah, as a matter of fact, God uses that situation to make you. I mean, we looked at it this morning. We saw this morning from David and his mighty men, a uh, bunch of misfits, Right? A bunch of misfits just running around, just, just didn't know how to lose a battle. Uh, you could stick me right in the middle of all those misfits. Um, I like that crowd. And uh, one, uh, anyways, Abraham had his mistakes and he did things wrong. And not only did he make a mistake, I mean, sometimes he, I mean, he just flat sinned. Can we say that? We want to sometimes soothe our own conscience, don't we? I made a mistake. No, I sinned. And God even uh, uh, can use a person even when they do something flat wrong and he can teach them and use that in their lives. Once coming to this point, I mean, God could ask him uh, of, of Abraham. He says, Abraham, uh, would you do something that nobody else would be willing to do? He's willing to follow, believing God would work the possible out of the impossible. And could you, I remind you again that the steps are ordered by God. And uh, would you notice the results of a man's ordered steps? I mean, look where they bring you to. All of our resisting to God's ordered steps only leaves us in Egypt or in the land of the Philistines, but our yielding to the Holy Spirit of God, our yielding to God brings us to the land of Moriah where you can express your heart of love towards God. And if we could learn this lesson that I hopefully can share with you this evening or this afternoon, I believe it would be a help in our Christian's life, in our Christian life. Notice first of all in verses seven and eight here, Abraham's clarity. Abraham's clarity. Uh, there is an amazing thing here with uh, uh, actually both Abraham and Isaac as well. Maybe you've noticed their silence in the whole matter. Verse 7, again, Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, uh, uh, Here am I, my son. And, and he said, Behold the fire, uh, behold the wood. Um, where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, My son. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So they went both of them together. In verses 7 and 8, we see that Isaac asks the question. Abraham answers a question. And it seems 
That was good enough. Would that really have been good enough for you? (laughs) May I suggest that there was clarity in their hearts. This does not mean that they understood the end from the beginning, but they trusted the very one who did know the end from the beginning. So you may not know what's going on, and, and, and you can ask a question, and an answer is given like, oh, God will provide himself a lamb. Oh, good enough. They didn't know, but they trusted the one who did know. How many of us in our hearts have a hard time trusting a situation unless I know the outcome? Man, I want to prod and poke and find what the outcome might be. Think of all the pressure that we place on ourselves when we're trying to figure out what the future might hold for us. How is this going to come? How is this going to play out? And faith removes that pressure. Faith trusts the one that holds the future in his hands. What clarity is displayed here in both of the lives in lives of both of these men. This seems to be a stark contrast as to how we live most of our lives. We're in a situation and then pressure hits us and uh, as to what we're to do in the situation that stands in front of us. We don't know how to handle it. And may I remind you that when Abraham assumed pressure and he wanted to figure out what to do, he always got himself into trouble. How are we going to, how, how is this going to happen? How am I going to fulfill what God's promise for me is if I don't do A, B, or C and try to figure this thing out for myself? That was not the call that God had called him to. God had called him to walk with himself, and God would take care of all the forethought. You walk with me, and I'll take care of the forethought. Hebrews eleven nineteen. Abraham believed that God would raise his son from the dead. Man, I don't know about you, and I know this is a very familiar story to all of us, but can you really truly imagine that? that you are going to believe. I don't know, how does it go? How, how, how does verse 2 go when, you know, uh, where he says, Take now thy son, thine only son, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him up there for burnt offerings upon one of the mountains which I tell thee of. How does the, how does the conversation go at home? Hey, honey, um, I'm taking Isaac. Oh, where are you guys going? Uh, we're going to go on a little expedition here. We're going to go up to Mount Moriah, and, and um, as far as I know, Um, I'm going to kill him on an altar. You're going to what? Oh, don't worry. God told me to. Oh. Well, that explains everything. Oh, honey, you got it all wrong. God's going to raise him right back up. How does this conversation go? We read it and hardly put any thought into it. How did that play out? What could give a man such clarity in his mind? Did he already know what God was going to do? Absolutely not. He had no idea what God was going to do. Had he known what God was going to do, then this would have never been a sacrifice. It would have just been a ritual that he was going to do if he had already known what God was going to do in all of this. His clarity came in the fact that he simply surrendered to a supernatural God. Period. 
He's going to yield himself completely to God and allow God to do all the forethought, to allow God to come up with every uh, avenue or whatever he's going to do. He personally just thought, well, God's obviously going to raise him because he told me he's going to be my seed. That's just a personal thought. God didn't even do what he was thinking. But he had the thought in his mind, that must be what God's going to do. He just had simple trust and faith in God. He's going to do exactly what he's always said. This is just a, you know, three-day journey there, three-day journey back. We'll be back in no time. We'll be back in a week. We're home for Sunday dinner. It really made no difference what God was going to do. He's going to trust him either way. This is of extreme importance because, you see, God never did tell him what he was going to do. What God did, if you can hold on to this thought with me for a while, we'll come back to it. The only thing God did is God revealed who he is. By understanding, stay with me, by understanding who God is, Abraham didn't have to know what he was doing. When I understand who God is, he is not a God in heaven with a stick that is waiting for you to mess up where he can beat you down and always hold it over your head and always rub it in your face and always convince you that you're a failure and you'll never get it right. That's not our God. When you know who he is, it doesn't matter what he's doing inside your life. Are we not wasting far too much time looking for the clarity in what God is doing instead of understanding who he is? When I'm convinced of who he is, I take my son for a walk. So Abraham's on a journey, a journey that leads to God. Something Abraham clearly understood, although he did not understand the path of God. He trusted that the Lord had ordered his steps. I know that sometimes this kind of stuff makes us feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? When we say things like God ordered our steps. When we say it is not in man to direct his own steps. Makes us kind of feel uncomfortable, doesn't it? Yet God knows all of these things. Preach a message out of Genesis 50 in, in the life of Joseph, and I just entitle it this way God meant it. God meant it. Do you need to understand each step? Is it because we've not grasped God's revelation of Himself to us? What's God doing? What's God doing? What's God doing? Does that not tell us and show us that we don't understand him yet? That I've got to know every single answer when I'm convinced as to who he is. I don't need those answers. Let me bring you back to where we started with Abraham's clarity. Remember his silence? Well, it revealed his clarity of mind. Sometimes those doing all the talking about what God is doing understand the least as to who he is. 
Number two, Isaac's calmness. Verses 9 and 10. And they came to the place which God told him of, and Abraham built an altar there and, and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the uh, uh, altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son. There cannot be enough said about Abraham and his walk with God and, and his expression here of his love for God. But a person has to do a double take when you're looking at Isaac as well. Again, Proverbs 20, 24, man's goings are of the Lord. How can a man understand his own way? I think we could say that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree here. Uh, he may not have understood his own way, but it seems that he understood that a man's goings are of the Lord. Isaac becomes a perfect picture of Christ himself and uh, who would rather uh, carry or later on would carry the wood upon his shoulder as Isaac did here. Then came the binding of Isaac, which foreshadowed the binding of Christ. Now, if we're not too careful or if we're not careful here, we'll start to look at the obedience of Isaac as we've seen or as we've seen in the, uh, the obedience of Christ and we'll make their example of obedience a formula to a fellowship with God. Now, I, let me explain that. As much as important as obedience is in our Christian, wife, in our Christian walk, it is not obedience that brought us into acceptance with God. It's the sacrifice and the death of Christ that made a pathway of acceptance before God. You can't earn yourself a seat in heaven through obedience alone. You can perform in your Christianity, and you may think, now, uh, this is just a little side note. Uh, I don't know of Baptists that don't believe salvation by grace through faith. Are you in agreement with me there? It seems to me, though, that uh, having traveled a little bit within our circles, that although we agree that salvation is by grace through faith, sometimes we practice that in sanctification it's through performance. You do these certain things and you'll grow in grace. Well, if I couldn't do a single thing to earn the grace of God in salvation, how do I earn God's grace in sanctification? It still has to be all of God working through you. Your obedience as well as it good as it needs to be, and it is a part of our Christian life, and we must walk in obedience, but your obedience doesn't earn you a single thing outside of God's grace saying, thank you, child, for walking in obedience to me. I believe that as Isaac was the perfect type in carrying the wood, the fire and the binding, I also believe that he was the perfect type of calmness to lay down his life as a sacrifice. If we're not careful in our lives, we'll get proud of our example. We'll get proud of our obedience. We'll get proud of our willingness to be bound uh, by someone else. And we'll miss the whole point of willingly being at a sacrifice, which, by the way, is acceptable with God. Number three, let's get to Abraham's commitment, verses 11 and 12. And the angel of the Lord called unto, unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. 
When I say Abraham's commitment, I'm referring to his commitment to God and not to a cause. Can you hold on to that with me? Because it might trip you up a little bit later, and I don't want to do that. But I, I, I just want you to think about this, that he is more committed to Christ than he is his cause. Not Christ's cause, but his own cause. Okay? So just hold on to that. Um, if I can explain this, God had talked to him from in the beginning of the chapter, and, and he heard God's voice. He discerned it to be God's voice, and he stepped out in obedience to God's word. Are we in agreement? He had to sacrifice his son. He steps out. He walks out in obedience. We can see that in chapter, in chapter 22 and verse 2. We got a chapter and verse 4, correct? You still with me? Okay. So far, we're in agreement. We admire and respect Abraham for this. But now the voice of God has come to him again. And as soon as he heard the voice of God again, he yielded himself to the voice of God just as quickly and just as wholeheartedly as he did when he first heard it. Now, although we may sigh a sigh of relief, and I wonder how many of us would have done the same, though, uh, and I want to explain that. When the effectual call of God has come to you, and you are convinced that God has called you to do something, there's no moving you, and there's no budging you. Am I correct? When you know you've got a verse from the, from the Bible and you are convinced that this is what God would have you to do, it doesn't seem to make a difference who says what or anything else. You're not going to budge because you know you've got something from God and his word. Are you, are you there? All right. So hold on to that one for a little bit. I mean, we're so convinced that you're willing to sacrifice your son, fully believing that God will raise him up, and then comes a voice out of nowhere, and you know that you're following God. You know what God told you to do. You're on Mount Moriah. You've got the altar built. You've bound your son. The knife is in your hand, and out of nowhere comes a voice and says, don't do what I just told you to do. Now, this is where I might scare some of you, and I don't want to, but I'm going somewhere, so just follow along with me. If you're committed to a cause, and I'm going to say the next word, but just, again, follow with me. If you're committed to a cause or your convictions alone, you might dismiss the second voice as Satan's voice and plunge the knife through the heart of your son because that is what you believe God had told you to do in verses 1 and 2. Still there? Okay. You got a verse for what God told you to do, right? You got Genesis chapter 22 and verse 2. Could it be any more clear than what God said? And now here you are. You hear a voice a second time. And you've convinced yourself this is God's will. You acted on it. You walked in obedience to what God told you. You're on the mountain. There's your son. The knife is in your hand. And all of a sudden a voice says, don't do what God told you to do. If you are committed to your own understanding, if you're committed to your own convictions, if you're committed to your own cause, you might just plunge the knife through the heart of your son. You must be committed to Christ. Far above even what you understand to be the just cause. If not, you might do something terribly wrong. 
If your commitment to the person is to the person of Christ, then you'll hear the voice that says, don't do it. And you immediately attribute it to God. And though it stands in clear contradiction to verse two. Can you see it? It's completely opposite. On the left hand, it says this. On the right hand, it says the opposite. Which one is it? Yes. Both. He who needed to walk in obedience of verse 1 and 2. So God could get you to the top of the mountain where you are going to express your heart of love for God. Once you're there, God says, now I want to change the plan. Can God change a plan on you? Or I want to be respectful to every elderly pastor that's here. But I've heard things over the years say something like this. Bless God, I haven't changed a thing since the day I came out of Bible college. Now, can I say this and not offend you? You either knew it all when you were out of Bible college. Here's the harsh part. Or you're just as dumb as you were back then. <laughs> Nothing changed? You didn't grow? You had all the understanding back then that you have now? I'm not saying that the first was wrong. It was correct. And what the first in verses 1 and 2, what was, that's what brought him to this mountaintop. But now he's here and the mission is accomplished. And now that the mission is accomplished, there's a new mission on the horizon. Let me repeat another preacher what he said. Beware of sticking to your convictions instead of to, instead of to Christ. And I've heard these preachers say all sorts of things. I mean, um, I, I'm old enough. I'm still young enough, but I'm old enough to have heard preachers say that if, um, if, if even if Jesus was in the auditorium, he'd preach against wire rim glasses, even though admittedly he couldn't find it in the scripture. Whatever, I don't care. Knock yourself out. But I don't understand that kind of stuff. When you get too committed to a cause, you might stab your son. You might miss the very thing God wants to show you next. Because bless God, I got me a verse, boom. And there goes your son. You will dismiss the second time God speaks as the devil. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not against convictions. What I'm saying is that we get to the point where we've drawn our lines in the sand and we commit ourselves to our convictions or to our causes and not even God can change our mind. And even if our convictions can't be found in Scripture, we're going to hold on to what we've said. He can't imagine that God would change his instructions, especially after he's heard clearly from the Lord. We assume that it's the sacrifice of death. That's the final thing that God is really after. But what if it's not? Romans 12, 1, we quote that and we want to be a living sacrifice and we understand that. 
But because so we are so focused on committed to our cause that the sacrifice of death, and that's the only thing, that's the finality of it all, we fail to realize that God is looking for a sacrifice through death. And because of his death, I can be a living sacrifice. It's not a death so much as a living sacrifice. It's one thing to end life, it's another to be a living sacrifice. Now notice again with me here over in Genesis chapter 22, and notice in verse 12. Can I get that water just for a second? He says, now, for now I know that thou fearest God. Now I know that thou fearest God. Amazing little wording here. What could be meant by this? I mean, I've heard preachers claim that it was... Uh, for Abraham to know, and that it, and, but that's not really what our text says. Uh, and may I hof, offer a, a humble suggestion here. Uh, it was Paul that stated in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul stated these words, he goes, that I might know him. Remember that, Philippians 3.10? That I might know him. This knowing speaks of an experiencing God, not just a head knowledge as to who God might be. So God tempts, verse 1, and, and don't have to erase that word either. Uh, if, you, if you're trying to contrast that with the book of James, you'll find out in the book of James, the context there of tempting where God tempteth no man is that of evil. But because he says that doesn't mean that God can't tempt him over here in Genesis chapter 22 towards something that is good. Okay? So a context of that will, will, will help us understand that. So God tempts Abraham here. And I know we all uh, say that he tried or tested him. Uh, but could it be that uh, the right word was truly used here and the translators got it right? And let me see if I can explain this. I truly believe that God developed Abraham through all of his past. And he brought him to such a point as this where he was going to uh, express his heart of love for God. And it was going to come oozing out of Abraham. God provoked. God tempted him. He provided a way for Abraham to express his heart of love to him. Stay with me here. You'll see in Psalms 1-6, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous. Is that correct? Job 23-10, but he knoweth the way that I take. Is that correct? Psalm 139-2, thou knowest my downsitting, mine uprising, thou understandest my thoughts afar off. Uh, Was that correct? Would you say that God knows everything about you? Does he know when you're going to fall, when you're going to do right or wrong? So what God now says in verse 12, Genesis 22, he says, for now I know. And this is where I'd like to offer a suggestion as to what might God be saying here. Obviously, God is not speaking about a head knowledge because he already knows everything about him. God is also not saying you, Abraham, now you know that you love me because that's not what he says in the verse. He's also not saying that now all the world will know that you love me. What God is saying, now I know. Now I know. Now you may not agree with me on this and that's okay, but what I believe is God is saying here is that now I, the God of heaven, and I'm pulling from the wording of Philippians 3.10, that I may know him. 
that I may experience God, Paul's saying. Could it be that God is saying to Abraham, now I know. Now I have experienced. Now I have been the recipient of an expression of love from a man towards God. God tempting was not just trying or testing him. He was provoking it to love. It was God tempting Abraham to express a love that is not known nor is it understood in the natural realm. The same mount that God would express his love for all of mankind. Abraham standing on that same mountain is expressing his love towards the God of heaven. And now the God of heaven says, where I will stand and express my love to you, now I have experienced your love for me. Abraham would become the recipient of the love of God and God became the recipient of the love of Abraham. Now I know. He tempted him, provoked him and provided a situation to which Abraham could go to the top of a mountain and put a knife almost to his son's heart and God says oh, hold on if a man loves me like that this same mountain I'm going to show my love to mankind let me give you fourthly and lastly Abraham's conclusion. We can't miss this. Verse 13, Abraham lifted up his eyes and behold, and behind him a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering instead of son. And Abraham called the name of the place Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day. And in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Let me ask you a question. Who understands the difference between a lamb and a ram. Are they the same animal? So we got two different animals here. Hold on to that. Such an interesting thought here. Verse 13. Notice with me, and I want you to go back to your Bibles because I know you will. You're going to figure out if I'm telling a lie or the truth, and I want you to. You'll notice that God does not give instruction to sacrifice a ram. No command for this. The only thing God told him was not to sacrifice his son. Now this is an awesome picture here that God has recorded for us. What this picture is, is the continual Heart and expression of love that comes from Abraham. And I get goosebumps every time I think about this. Although his son was not to be sacrificed, the heart of Abraham, uh, 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 and over the heart of Abraham uh, of his son, was not going to be withheld from the father. Even though he says, don't sacrifice my son, he says, I'm not stopping there. 
Just because God said, hey, you don't have to sacrifice your son, Abraham could not get it within himself to stop there. I mean, if it would have been me, I would have packed up, taken my son, and headed for home as fast as I could and told my wife, whoo, that was close. So what does he do? He lifts his eyes. He looks around. He sees a ram caught in a thicket. Although not commanded to sacrifice him, he places the ram on the altar. Now go back to verse 13 with me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, looked and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket. That means he was looking around. If it's behind him, he didn't just lift up his eyes and see a ram. Behind him, he's looking. What can I, if I can't sacrifice my son, what can I give? Notice what he says here. And Abraham went and took the ram, offered him up in the burnt offering. And notice the words now. In the stead of his son. Not instead of his son. In the stead. So the ram becomes the substitute through which he sacrifices his son to God. He says, you don't have, hey, you told me I can keep my son. Thank you. But I can't stop my heart from loving you and expressing that love. So he finds himself a ram. And he says, son, help me get the ram on the altar. Let's get him on the altar. And let's sacrifice to God because he let you live. But we can't stop our heart from oozing and expressing our love for him. So in the stead of Isaac, there's the ram sacrificed to the father. Let me say it this way. Isaac was still the sacrifice through the sacrifice of the ram. Not because it was a command. It was an expression of of love from the heart of Abraham, I believe also Isaac, that says, Dad, son, we got to do it. God is so good. God is so good. I can only see Abraham saying, I thought he was going to raise you. I thought I, thought I was going to have to kill you, and I thought God was going to bring you right back up. <laughs> I thought that's what was going to happen. But he didn't. And let's find something. Ah, oh, a ram. Get that thing over here. And I can see him sacrificing the ram. And I can see Abraham saying, God, here's my son. The ram in the stead of my son. God's let you keep some things. But as soon as God says you don't have to sacrifice your Isaac, you hightail it and run. You know what we do sometimes? We look at the ram, preacher. Say, I could use that at home. 
Look, God blessed me for my obedience. He provided me a ram, and he did. But the heart of Abraham couldn't stop himself. He had to give it back to God. Abraham's conclusion was that his expression of love would be displayed so that the spiritual sacrifice and the physical sacrifice would become one. The physical was a picture of what was going on spiritually on the inside. I wonder if there is something here today that God says, I want you to give it to me. Give it to me. You know, it's a really scary thing. It's a real scary thing when you say something like, God, you can have my family. I give you my kids. I give you my family. And as soon as God takes them, no! We hold on with all of our might. No, not my baby girl. No, not my son. No, not my kids. No, not my wife. And we, and we cling as fast and hard as we can. And if God ever puts it back in our hands, we hold it tight and hightail it home. But if we're more committed to Christ than our cause, I'm looking for something to sacrifice in the stead of. And say, God, my heart can't stop. I want to express. And God says, now I've experienced what you will experience from this same mountain. So in closing, let me ask you this. God wants something from you. How tight are you holding it? You got a brand new year coming. Your pastor just said, um, we're going to focus on others this year. You know what that usually means? A sacrifice of something from you. And then we say, phew, this time it didn't cost me anything. What? Where's the heart that says, since you let me keep my son, let me give this in the stead of my son. Where's that sacrifice? Where's that heart? And if you've got something that you're holding so dear, and you say, nope, I got a chapter and verse for this, there's no way that I am straying from the chapter and verse. 22, verse 2, I know I got to kill my son. If you're holding on to that more than anything else and you, you feel that that's become your cause in life and the only way to satisfy God now is to kill your son, you will dismiss his voice when he comes back and he says, don't do it. And because he says, don't do it, my heart says, I have to. I have to give back. And you find yourself a ram. And you sacrifice it in the stead of. In this next year, when you think of others, 
would you think of Abraham and Isaac? God bless you.